Thanks for joining me, Pete Holtzman, for the Credentials Only podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Jason Beck, MLB.com's beat writer covering the Detroit Tigers. And while Jason's offseason has just begun, he's not exactly taking it easy, as the Tigers already have a coaching search underway. Plus, there will be free agency, and in a few short months, spring training will get underway, followed by a season with 162 games in 180 days. You know, you get two to three off days a month, probably. And you're still riding on those days anyway, so they're not necessarily off days. The recently concluded season was definitely different, both in terms of the number of games, but also because riders like Jason did not travel to away games. I think on some level, the remote coverage is going is here to stay. Jason will share in this episode his advice when it comes to landing a story before it's been made public. The first and foremost thing I, I've learned over the years in doing that is that when you have a scoop, you better make darn sure you're absolutely right and rock solid on it. Jason also shares how social media has impacted his reporting, especially when it comes to breaking news. And once we realized that like, you could break news on Twitter without having a story to link to, I think that changed a lot. And you ended up struggling. I think a lot of us ended up struggling to find a balance to where how can you break news and get the credit you want and in some cases you crave without cannibalizing your job and taking away the page views that your bosses want. Check out credentialsonly.com for show notes that include more information on what we discussed in this episode. And please take a moment to leave a review wherever you're listening. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Jason Beck, Detroit Tigers beat writer on MLB.com. There's a breaking ball in for a strike, and he stood there like the house by the side of the road and wants to go by. Struck him off. Well, Jason Beck, thanks for joining me. And actually, I, gotta, I, I can't even go in with a question straight away. I got to go in with more of a grievance. I don't understand how it's possible that you spend every day covering Major League Baseball, and, and yet you just – don't have any sort of a handicap on you when you're playing fantasy baseball with your college buddies. Well, you know, in this case, spending all my time in front of a computer, like every day during a season actually worked to my advantage. So, you know, while I was busy, I had an ability to pick up guys as they got called up like fairly quickly. I have no idea how I missed Sixto Sanchez, but like some of these, you know, like Brian Hayes, I was able to pick up really quick. Uh, a few other guys, uh, you know, uh, Kyle Lewis, I picked up really early on before he got in. But you guys allowed me to draft Luis Roberts, so that's that's on you guys. I feel like, you know, there should be, hey, someone's got to be active for 24 hours before you're allowed to pick them up. I mean, do you think that's a fair suggestion? Asking for a friend, by the way. <laughs> I I have waited for for Tom, our common friend and the league commissioner, to submit that proposal. Thankfully, he has not. But uh, yeah, I do feel like my knowledge of various farm systems works to my advantage unfairly. Explain what it is that you do and how you get all this knowledge of all the ins and outs of Major League Baseball. So I'm a baseball beat writer. Um, I. They mainly cover one team specifically. I cover the Detroit Tigers. But as part of that, you kind of end up having a knowledge of a bunch of other teams. 
And when you cover a rebuilding team, you end up with a pretty good knowledge of a lot of different farm systems because you end up following a lot of minor league games, in my case, driving to a decent number of minor league games and watching a lot of prospects in different organizations. And it's drivable for you because of this setup Detroit has because their minor league team is just down the road, isn't it? Their, their AAA team is an hour away, maybe even less than that. I can get to fifth, third field in Toledo in, in about an hour, maybe just over depending on traffic. Their Class A team in Grand Rapids is just over two hours away from me. So that's a day trip as well. And then their AA team is further away in Erie to the five-hour drive. But since I have family in Pennsylvania, it's like going home for me. So I usually get there. You know, when the minor leagues are playing, I get there like once or twice a season. So it's, it's really it, – it's, it's a perfect storm for me. And I think that's probably, and you would know better though. I mean, is, is that unusual for all the minor league affiliates or most of them to be that close, especially AAA to the big league club? I mean, that's, those players can move back and forth quite a bit during a season. It's, it's, it's kind of unusual. Yeah. It's, you know, the type, certainly to have that many teams that close by, it's, it's a type of setup that a lot of organizations envy. Toledo has always been a natural for them. That, that's been the Tigers AAA affiliate since oh, mid to late 80s now. Um, and the team in Grand Rapids has been their affiliate since the mid 90s. Erie got on board in 2000, 2001. And so that's, it's kind of been, for a Midwestern team, it actually makes perfect sense. I'm kind of surprised more teams don't try to have it set up this way but especially when when the Tigers got started on this particular rebuild it worked really well because you could promote guys back and forth and have them not only within you know a driving trip for front office guys and and reporters to watch but also being able to promote guys from double A AA to triple A without having them have to make a long trip is, is really perfect. So once you get them into the system, it really works out well. And, and now that you have more and more teams with a setup to do, um, you know, the advanced metrics and also the uh, player tracking with like the, um, the smart cages and the, the biometrics and everything, they have that set up. They have a partnership with the University of Michigan. So they can send guys back and forth to, from Grand Rapids and Toledo and Ann Arbor if they want to get a look at a guy and not have to set up a bunch of expensive, expensive equipment at a minor league ballpark. Yeah, I want to get into some more of that, especially on that advanced metrics and technology in the sport. But taking a half step back to what you do. So you're a beat writer covering the Tigers. For whom and where, where is your paycheck coming from? My pay, paycheck comes from MLB Advanced Media, which is kind of a corporate offshoot of Major League Baseball. Um, it got started. They were there. They've been in separate buildings for the longest time in different parts of New York City. Uh, you know, MLB, MLB's always had the Park Avenue building, and then um, MLB Advanced Media was always stationed in Manhattan, in the Chelsea neighborhood in Manhattan. And then 
the MLB network was even further away in, in New Jersey. I, th I guess they still are. And then they merged some of that stuff into uh, one office at the Avenue of Americas in uh, Manhattan. Yeah, I guess in Midtown, I guess. So it's all coming. It, it's all in one building, even though the paycheck still says MLB Advanced Media. But uh, that came out of the online project they started up just under 20 years ago now to where they decided they were going to do all the team sites and the league site in-house and so they basically started up their own media company and this was about uh seven or eight years before they started up mlb network so this content that you produce then goes on to mlb.com as well as the tigers official website yes yeah well uh, both of those. So, in fact, I did a story a little bit ago on the Tigers managerial process, which I think is up on both sites now, because when A.J. Hinch and Alex Cora get in the headlines, it, it makes national news, which is somewhat rare for, for the Tigers the last few years. It's that they make national news. So you're employed essentially by Major League Baseball. You're covering the team for the team. And you're a journalist at heart, and we'll talk about your background. You know, you've, you've worked for a number of different newspapers. There's a little bit, I would think, of a gray area there when then there's bad news or there's a scoop. Where do you fall on that as you do encounter those things, knowing where you're getting paid from? Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's different. It's, it's very unique. Uh, the first and foremost thing I, I've learned over the years in doing that is that when you have a scoop, you better make darn sure you're absolutely right and rock solid on it. And so in doing that, you have to make sure you have a very good network of sources within an organization. And fortunately, I've been blessed enough to build a, a pretty good network that I trust so that when I find out, like last night, that the Tigers were letting go of seven scouts, I'm pretty confident in that. And then they, they were able to get it confirmed this morning. But um, in terms of bad news, it, it still gets covered. You watch how you cover some of the stuff, you know, like, you know, steroids and sign stealing and all that stuff. You tread carefully, but you still tread there and you still have to acknowledge, you're like, yeah, it's. It's a presence and it's a factor in Major League Baseball. Like, and, and this is a good example of it. Like, the Tiger, you know, the general manager acknowledges that A.J. Hinch and Alex Corey, even though they're under MLB suspension, are on the list of managerial candidates. So you have to write it. And you all, at the same token, you have to write that they're under suspension and that once their suspensions are over, they're free to be interviewed just like any other candidate. And if they get hired... I'm sure there's going to be a whole lot of outcry from a lot of people around baseball and you end up tackling it and you end up addressing it, but you try to give a perspective that's different than a lot of other outlets. And you try to give like an insider's perspective because you kind of, you have a unique view on the process that goes into it. And I want to just point out here, we're having this conversation in the afternoon of, of Friday, October 2nd. By the time someone's listening to this, who knows what could be happening with this managerial search. Yeah, may well know, have maybe broken. Don Kelly's the Tigers manager by the time we're, we're, <laughs> the people are listening to this. I, I don't know. 
So you, you mentioned some other outlets, you know, you're trying to differentiate your coverage from what other outlets are doing. Who is your competition? Well, it's, you know, you have two Detroit's one of the few markets left with multiple newspapers. They have the news and the free press. Uh, there is a chain of newspapers elsewhere in the state that has a network called M Live that's actually more online focused now than it is print focused. And then you have the TV stations. Um, you know, you have all the major networks in Detroit. And um, you also have the Athletic now, which is, you know, has a Detroit outlet and has become an increasing influence, I think, nationwide. And it's kind of, uh, you know, a, it's an outlet that a lot of people are following because they're getting started in the online only version as well. And they're doing a subscription model, which I think a lot of people are tracking to, to see how it goes. And so far it's gone pretty well. Is it cutthroat competition? Um, it's collegial and it's still competitive, I guess is the way to put it. Um, we, we had an incident uh, a few years, a couple years ago, where the two B writers for the daily papers got into a Twitter spat online, which became all too public, and which I got caught in the middle of, and which I ended up asking them what were they what were they thinking by having a public Twitter spat, thinking nobody would be following this. Right after we got back from a road trip to Texas, and they're right after the trade deadline, not thinking this was going to be a huge story. It became something that I had to answer questions about since I'm involved in the BBWA chapter here. But um, yeah, it's, you know, it, it's friendly competition. You know, we, we still feel good enough, you know, that if we weren't in the middle of the pandemic, we would be able to go out and have beers um, and have meals together on the road if we were still traveling. I think one of the writers traveled this year. Um, but yeah, we, we're still trying to get different scoops. We're, just, we're still using our sources when deals go down and when you know managers are interviewed and, and get hired. It's been quite, pretty quiet so far. But yeah, you go at it and yeah, you get frustrated with different people. But you also, when you're when you work together long enough, you get an idea of who each other's sources are. You get an idea of which agents talk to who, which writers, nationally and locally. And so you, you get a pretty good grasp on, on it. And you, you know each other's moves, so to speak, I guess. And you mentioned the camaraderie of maybe going out and having a beer after a game on the road and everything. Uh, you have an advantage, though, of having kind of a bigger network in that MLB.com has someone doing your job for all the other teams. How much do you guys rely on each other, especially – come trade deadline or when free agency period is happening and you're picking up different players, is that a network you're able to tap into pretty readily? Yes. Yeah. It's absolutely vital. In fact, it's, you know, it's, it, it's almost, it would be unusual if I weren't using that network around trade deadline time, but we're around trade deadline day and we're always in touch with, with somebody on that end. Um, it was a little bit different this year because there were fewer deals going down but still, it's like, you know, when we realized Cam Maven was going to the Cubs, I was in touch with our Cubs writer, and we were trying to figure out who was the return piece, who the prospect was, in this case, uh, Zach Short, a, uh, a shortstop prospect who was kind of further down on the list. And you're kind of in, in touch and, and getting an idea of 
you know, how it came together and, and who's covering how much salary and, and whatnot like that. So it was bigger in previous years and in bigger deals to where it's like when the Tigers traded Alex Avila and Justin Wilson to the Cubs for Jamie Candelario and Isak Paredes a couple of years ago, I was involved in, you know, I was, I was trading texts and calls with our Cubs writer trying to confirm different parts of that deal. And then like a month later, when the Justin Verlander trade go down, went down, I was in touch with our Astros writer, Brian McTaggart, basically all night trying to figure out, and, you know, he's, he's dealing with his sources and I'm dealing with my sources and we're trying to come together and figure it out. And, you know, we end up writing different stories because we're on different ends of the deal. And, and that deal particularly was, uh, you know, you had to write it differently from different vantage points because this was the Astros going for it. And at the same time, you know, that Verlander deal was really the, the part where, you know, you realized the Tigers were going full on into a rebuilding mode and that this was going to be a long-term rebuild. So you had to write two completely different stories off the same deal. But yet at the same time, you're talking with each other and realizing what's going into to which deals. You get to spend the entire season together with that group of writers and also with the team personnel, but also with the players. Do you develop a rapport over time as you're in the locker room and, you know, in a good year in the locker room or this year on a Zoom um, with the manager every day just about and with a lot of the same players day over day throughout the, an entire summer? Yeah, and in fact, that's, you know, that, that's one of the things that really keeps me energized about this job after all these years is that, you know, you, you get to know players in a way that I, I think is different than, than what national writers do and what a lot of guys covering other sports do. Is that, you know, in a normal season without a pandemic, you're around this, this group of players every day, generally day in and day out for seven to eight months, depending on spring training and the postseason. And so you end up develop, developing relationships. You end up getting to know guys. And, you end up getting to know their families in some cases and getting to know what they're going to on a day-in-day-out basis. And you have conversations about baseball and stuff other than baseball. And, you know, you really get to know about it. And even even this season, not being around, you know, I, you know, I live in the, the same suburb that a lot of players live in. I ended up seeing players out and about on on the street during my run you know it's you know i saw um you know matthew boyd you know who lives in the same town as he was riding his bike that you know he'd taken up biking to be able to uh go around the neighborhood with with his kids and his wife and so it's like you get to know these guys on a different level that it's 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 very unique and it's you know it's yeah, you develop sources, but you also, you know, develop contacts. And, and later on, they, they become friends when you're not covering them anymore. You mentioned the seven to eight months. And I think when I look at sports in general, baseball is one that to me is just kind of crazy <laughs> this season. Um, 162 games, and that's usually over how many days? I mean, not that many off days picked in, right? Yeah, it's 162 games over usually about 180 days thereabouts. So it's you know you 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 get you know just over you know you get 
two to three off days a month, probably. And you're still riding on those days anyway, so they're not necessarily off days. They're off days for the team. They're not necessarily off days for you. How do you handle the rigors of that? I mean, that just seems like a really intense schedule. Because, oh, by the way, half of those games aren't even in your hometown. Right. And generally, like, I don't make every road trip. I think in last year I ended up making between a half and – two-thirds of the road trips. So those series that you're not covering end up being series off for you. We cover in the – we handle our beat a little bit differently in that because we're a national outlet instead of local, I do all the home games. But when I – when a team goes on the road and I'm not covering it, we usually have somebody there to cover it for me. Whereas for like a newspaper beat, they're generally doing most, if not all, the road trips, and then they'll get their days off at home when, when the team's at home because they'll have another writer from, say, like the Lions beat or maybe the Red Wings beat who comes in and, and covers for, for a few days. So it's – but, yeah, it, it's a grind regardless either way. And I think what, what gets you through is that you just set up a routine um, is that you're so used to – getting up at a certain time and then you go online and you check, you check your emails, you check the stories from the night before, and then you go and work out mid to late morning. And then you come back and you start texting and you start getting right. You start looking stuff up for the day. You start going on the stat cast and all this stuff to look up data to figure out what you're going to write about for your pregame notebook. And then you go to a ball go to the ballpark at a certain point. And that was very different this year because normally for like a seven o'clock game, I'm going to the ballpark around 2.30, three o'clock. This year with the protocols and with everything pre and post game being done on Zoom anyway, so you could do it from home. I was writing my notebook from, from home basically and then driving to the ballpark when I was done with my notebooks. So I would get to the ballpark Sometimes, like, right before game time, if I was, you know, and it would be tight. But there would be nobody there, so you weren't dealing yeah, with traffic, which was – Yeah, so there's strange. no traffic, no lines to get in, nothing. It, it, 2020 is quite the outlier. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, for – I think there was a the doubleheader against the Reds. I, you know, it's like it started at 1 o'clock. I get there, like, 20 till 1, and there's still so much time left. But I figure, okay, I'm going to need a caffeine jolt before I, you know, to cover two games. So I go to the Starbucks, which had opened across the street right before the pandemic, and which, thank goodness for me, this season was still open. And I, you know, I do an online order and go in and get it, and I go in right before the anthem started. It's like in no other year does this happen. And I know some of the broadcasts, perhaps all of them even, they were staying in their home park even when the team was on the road. Were you covering any of the road games from the Tigers' home stadium? Not from the stadium, but I covered them from home. Okay. So I, I, and I did end up covering all, all but I think two or three games on the road, road games. I did them, but I just did them from home, which meant you know, basically doing – it was the same routine as for a home game in terms of – pre- and post-game Zoom calls. Well, not post-game, because post-game Zoom calls for home games 
I was doing from the press box at the, at the ballpark. But um, pregame, I was doing from home. But then when it came time to cover the game, you get in front of your TV or you do it from the laptop and you just start doing them that way. And you're, you're covering basically off the broadcast. I think we had, you know, one extra angle, one or two extra angles with um, through like the MLB network feed that we were able to get. I got the feed from like high up above home plate, which sometimes helped. When you were trying to look at like shifts and if certain guys were warming up in the bullpen, and you know we had a you know feed a Slack feed that would also tell us when certain pitchers were warming up and scoring decisions because games were also being scored. The, the official scores were broken from home this season too, which was also very strange. Oh wow, I didn't know that. That, yeah. that seems very complicated. Yeah, that got very complicated in that you know they're watching off the broadcast, so they have a delay. And they're trying to get different angles, hoping that the broadcast shows an angle that they need. And then they're communicating their calls via Slack. And so we would either get them on Slack or for home games, somebody who was doing like the um, MLB network thing, or I think in our case at Comerica Park, it was the guy who was doing the game clock in terms of like, you have so many seconds after a play to challenge a call, that guy was announcing the official scoring decisions, and because he had access to to the Slack feed, so it was very it was very unusual. It was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. Do you think that because we've learned how to do this remotely, the dollars will be there from? decision makers and and not just for you at MLB.com, but for newspapers and everything to still send reporters on the road as much as they have, or do you think this remote coverage will stay with us well beyond the pandemic? I think on some level, the remote coverage is going, is here to stay. I think, I think we'll still do some road coverage, but I think it'll be, it might not be as frequent or it might be a little different. Uh, but but I do think this, you know, I don't think I don't think it'll change everything full time because I did get the sense as the season went on, at least covering the Tigers, that the whole Zoom interviews things was was wearing on players. You you ended up getting more and more players who were turning down interview requests, which was difficult. And I know it was wearing on media relations departments because having to grab guys out of the locker rooms and take them into a separate room to do these interviews was, you know, exceedingly difficult and, and a war on guys as, as you went along. So it's, you know, while I think some things will still be doable on zoom and, and it's going to change some things, I think to some degree, you'll still have some clubhouse access and you'll still have a benefit to uh, writers going on the road. In a normal year, what is that access like? Are you waiting for them to deliver someone to a podium in a press conference? Or is that really limited to the manager and a star of the game and everybody else, you're fending for yourself in the locker room and just trying to get, you know, use those relationships that you've built? It, it's more the latter. And that's really what I think makes the baseball beat so unique is that, at least until this year, is that it, they're – 
there was so much less, fewer canned interviews, you know, so much fewer, so much less uh, podium uh, use that, you, you know, you could still go into a clubhouse before a game and talk to guys and get one-on-one interviews and be able to, you know, just chat with guys and, and, and get information that you might not even ever, you know, quote guys on, but you could get background to, to kind of get an idea of what players are going through or, or what what the struggles are or, or what a player is working on if they're in a slump or, you know, if, if they're working their way back from injury. So it's, you know, I, I hope that does not go away. That was very difficult to get to this season. And it ended up to where you're going through media relations to get information through trainers or you end up having to request coaches who, because their schedule is so busy every day, you end up getting them like super early. So I think we would get like the pitching or hitting coach on a given day, like at one o'clock for a seven o'clock game, which is, you know, exceedingly early, but it was the only way to make it doable. But, you know, I, I think, I hope that once we get back to some semblance of normalcy and we can get clubhouse access back, that we can get back to something more resembling what we had before because it did, because of how difficult it was to try to replicate that in, in this scenario. In the travel department, are you, in the past, when you're able to do it anyway, are you traveling with the team? Or are you fending for yourself in that regard as well and making all your own travel arrangements? Uh, I would travel separate the whole time. Um, yeah, it's, I, I think all of us did. So I was, I would book on my own. We, we had like our own little like travel online portal we would book through. But yeah, I was booking like, you know, I was booking flights on Delta out of Metro airports. Uh, I was booking my own hotel. Sometimes I would stay at the same hotel as the team. Sometimes I wouldn't. Uh, used to be you could go through the traveling secretary and get team rates at some hotels, which in some cases would be advantageous compared to what you could get online. Um, it That ended up being less and less often in recent years, just because sometimes, it, you know, it just, they, the hotels wouldn't have the rooms or they would only honor a certain number of rooms. Or in a lot of cases, you would end up finding something cheaper somewhere else that and it might still be right by the ballpark. And it would, the benefits of staying at a team hotel ended up being less and less because you just didn't have that same access. What is your process then for the expense reports? Do you just save them all for the end of the season? <laughs> I, I tried that in certain years and they got really angry at me. So they ended up trying to go like trip by trip. So it's um, uh, fortunately with a lot of things done online now, you can get like online receipts for a lot of hotels and flights. And flights actually we didn't, um, we ended up using uh, last year, I think, yeah, last year. And I know for spring training, we ended up booking using a corporate car. And that was the first time we'd used that for anything. So, but we had that through basically any airline when we're on the book, but we would do uh, hotels and rental cars on our own. 
and then we would submit the receipts for them. Uh, and then we would just usually do that trip by trip. Uh, the scenarios where it got tricky was in spring training because when you're booking a hotel for 43, 45 days, as, as I did this year, we, you know, you would end up having, you know, a certain, the receipts you would get, you would get the folios like every week or two, you know, you wouldn't get them all in one receipt. So you end up deciding, okay, do I, do I submit these receipts as I go? I would just end up just submitting them at the end of spring training. It usually worked um, along with the, uh, the rental cars. The rental cars were tricky for spring training too, because in a lot of cases, it, it gets tricky when you go beyond 30 days on a rental car. Uh, in some years, I would have to literally go back to the airport and then turn it in and then, and then do it again. And then as I realized what was going on, I started booking through the same company. Uh, they would, they, you know, they would go around that process and say, yeah, just either just call us or by the end, they'd just say, yeah, we figured it out. Don't worry about it. We'll just figure it out. You know, God bless you national to give an un unsolicited plug there. Um, but you know, it's, you go trip by trip and you submit those. And, and usually you have a pretty good idea as the season went along what the budget would was like. You know, your bosses would let you know. And when you cover a rebuilding team, you kind of realize going in that once you get past the trade deadline and your team's out of it, you're probably not going to travel as much as you were earlier in the year just because the sense of suspense and the reader interest, you know, drops after a certain point, you know, usually after the trade deadline. So, but, but you know, those trips going in and we usually had pretty good knowledge in advance, what trips to book for. And you know, I, I think every baseball writer has gone through that routine as well to where when the schedule comes out, you know, the trips you probably have a good chance of, of going on and what trips you probably won't. And so you try to book, at least hotels on the trips you're going on to try to get a, a good rate and try to get a good hotel close to the ballpark. And then if you have to cancel later on, you can, knowing that cancellation policy by heart. <laughs> so the, the travel is a big part of it. But then the other thing, and, and we talked about how many games, you know, 162 and 180 days. And most of those are going to be at night. Do you wind up just shifting your body clock for most of the season to account for the fact that you're playing, you know, the, you're covering games that start at seven and probably getting home at midnight, you know, six nights a week. Oh yeah. Yeah. Your body adjusts to it. Now it, it takes a, a few days, but once you get through that first night game where you're starting to feel drowsy around like the eighth or ninth inning. And so, you know, you, hopefully the, the coffee is still working in the press box after that, you, you, you get adjusted to it. And, now the, it's, but it, it definitely is an adjustment because for, for a baseball season in particular, you start out with six weeks of spring training to where you're getting up at six in the morning. You're at the ballpark by 7.30 or 8 o'clock to, to be there in time for the clubhouse to open at 8 in the morning. And so you can have your, pre, your pre-workout media window from eight to nine 
And then you either go cover a workout, you get ready for a game, or you talk to the scouts who are there scouting players for that particular game. And then you have a one o'clock game, and then you do your post-game media access as that game is going on or after it's done. And you get done around, you know, 5 or 5.30, you know, go back to your hotel. Hopefully, you still have enough time to get in a workout. Thank goodness Lakeland's got, like, lighted running pads, so I can do that. But then, like, around, you know, I would say around, like, 9 o'clock, you start feeling tired in spring training, and you feel like, oh, my goodness, how old am I getting? But it's just, it's your body adjusting, get ready to do that routine all over again. And then fortunately covering the Tigers, that first homestand is almost always like all day games. So you ease into that adjustment. But then that first night game is like, oh man, it's your body clock is just completely thrown off. It's just really. And if that first. But then once you get, yeah. If you have that first road game then out on the West Coast, it's just got to be a complete disaster. Yes. And it, for <laughs> years and years, it, it usually seemed to be the case to where the Tigers would have a West Coast trip around the end of April. And I don't know if they did that booking for, like, for weather purposes or what, but it was always – you could always bank on that. It, during, during the years when – I don't know if Dave Dombrowski – had an in with MLB and that's just the way he preferred it. So they knew that so they could get around having some, you know, rain outs and at the end of April, knowing how unpredictable Detroit's weather was, but you could always count on it. And you could always count on that first West coast game for you being an absolute challenge to stay up for because you would have the combination of jet lag and, and not being used to night games. In fact, I think it was it was Brad Osmus's first year, so it would have been 2014. The Tigers opened on the West Coast. So you ended up getting that twofold. So you went from Lakeland spring training times to West Coast times for, for the start of the season. And, and it was, oh, but, man. but it made up for being like, okay, it's in April. Instead of being in Detroit, we're in LA, so it could be a lot worse. You talked a lot about spring training, and you've mentioned the trade deadline as well, which are kind of their own stories within the bigger season. But then there's the off season, and this year, obviously, with the managerial surge, it's a little bit different. To say nothing of COVID, making it a little bit different. But what is the off season typically like in terms of covering free agency and and all those moves? And, and when is there really actually downtime after October, November, before you get to spring training in February? Well, usually you can, you can count on your team doing something at a certain time, and then you hope that after that or before that, you have a window where you can have a life. If you cover a team that's not contending, October is usually a pretty good time to try to have a life. I will be... Uh, helping out covering on one of the division series from home. So that will take up one week of my schedule. But other than that, from the league championship series on, it's like I'm pretty much free. In fact, you know, they're, I think they, they'd like me to try to take a week of vacation, except I have a managerial search. So this is the 
or to one exception this year. Um, and this one could drag on because, as we mentioned before, with A.J. Hinch and Alex Cora suspended, the Tigers, or no team can talk to them about a Mandrillo opening until after the World Series is over. So, so we'll have a Mandrillo search that there's a good chance it could go into November. So you, you try to pick and choose your spots where you try to go do something and, and have a life. But, you know, with a pandemic still going on, and it's like I'm not going to do a whole lot anyways, so I didn't have any exotic travel plans set aside so it's like yeah i'll just go do whatever so you kind of try to time what you have to do at certain points of the day so you can try to go go grab something to eat maybe or go be able to go work out at a certain time of the day every day for a while so you can get into a routine so it's but it's it's definitely irregular. I would imagine that then the All Star break is a huge boost to have three four days in in mid July to just kind of step off the gas pedal a little bit. Yes, yes, very much so. That was usually my time to either like go go visit family somewhere or go see some friends or just go somewhere and just like kind of kick back and not worry about having to write anything for for three or four days so that's where you want the road trip to be someplace really good right after the all-star breaks you can just get there early or close by at least in fact yeah in fact i I remember there was one year the tigers ended and you know went and had a west coast trip right before the all-star break and so we ended the first half in seattle and i ended up staying back for a couple days and just hanging out. I remember going to like a Foo Fighters concert in in Seattle there. Um, and in fact, there was a player who recommended it to me. I remember it was Jason Grilly because I didn't realize that they were on tour and going through that area at the same time. And so I was able to uh, to go see it. And I owed him one. I just I just went and did that and enjoyed it and went uh, went exploring. Uh, for for another day or two around Seattle, and then flew back and got ready for uh, the second half of the season. After that, I've I the West Coast trips. I usually try to set aside either a series off or a break of some sort so I could go explore. I've I've explored Vancouver and other places around the Pacific Northwest that way. You've done a great job breaking down your days, um, and that that was part of what I was going to have you walk us through. I have a few more specifics on just how you do your job. The first one, have to ask a baseball guy this, do you keep score? Yes, very much so. In fact, I I started out this season thinking I wasn't going to do it, thinking it's like, well, if everything's being done electronically, I'm not going to have to worry about carrying my scorebook down to the clubhouse to point out certain points of the game. Why am I keeping score? And I made it through maybe two games that way before thinking, I can't do this. I have to keep score. And so, in fact, I've got – the only change was that, in fact, I, I'll use a prop for this. I, I have my scorebook right here that I was able to keep score through the season. And I referred back to it. And I was glad to be able to do it because you get so used to doing that over the years that – 
you know, you, you rely back on that to remember certain points and certain stats and you'll write down certain notes that way. In fact, I've got, I'm almost OCD about it to where like other writers will make fun of me because I have like eight different colors of pens that I use for different pitchers in the game. It's, it's insane. I have a problem doing this, but I've gotten so used to it. I, I have four color big pens from like over the last five years that thank goodness they have not worn out because if I have to find a fine point version of those four color pens again, I don't know if they still make some. And it, it brings up a perfect segue to my next question, which is you get so much data and have to keep track of it, to be able to call on it at a certain time. And it could be everything from on the field of, boy, they've struck out the last 11 times they faced a left-handed pitcher to, you know, any other on-field stat to say nothing of anecdotes of these people. Because at the end of the day, they're more than players. They're people, and they've got their own lives and, and things happening around them that are certainly part of the story arc throughout a season. What is, beyond the meticulous multicolored scorebook, what is the secret that you have for keeping organized? Is it notebooks? Is it on a computer? Is it an app? What, what do you do? Uh, I, I would say until this year, it was notebooks. I would, I would keep pretty good uh, track day by day how, what to look out for. And also, like, it's, it's evolved over the years on this beat and probably on a lot of covering a lot of other sports as well to where you record every interview. And so you end up transcribing every interview that way. And you're, you're writing down fewer and fewer quotes in your notebook, unless you're just absolutely in a hurry and you want to just get like one quote. Um, So a lot of times, instead of writing down the exact quotes, I would write down certain points, you know, uh, minutes and seconds into a recording where a quote might be that I want to go back to and transcribe. I'll do that all the time. And it used to be with, with a digital recorder and now we use our phones all the time. And thank goodness the phones have the recording apps that still give you like that, uh, that timestamp for, for when something comes through. Some of them you can even bookmark it as you go. But, um, you know, that, that has changed and that's, this year, it was very different because everything was on Zoom and you could record everything. But you also had a transcribing program with, with Otter. We would use Otter to transcribe a lot of these. And it wasn't exact. It couldn't get all the words right. But it would at least give you something to refer back to and go say, okay, these words, okay, I remember this question. Now let me transcribe this answer and use like, you know, go back and listen to it make sure I've got the wording right, because it wouldn't be perfect, but it would give you just enough to, to go off of and go back and get the exact quote that you want to use. At the risk of exposing your age here, you have been doing this for the Tigers and, and MLB.com for a long time. Um, I would imagine you're probably one of the most tenured uh, among your MLB.com colleagues. A lot has changed in the sport, but a lot has changed in journalism, and in particular social media. How has, and really Twitter, probably more than the others, how has that impacted your work? 
Twitter has, the impact has really evolved. Um, you know, it's, you're still, once it developed, once we realized that like you could break news on Twitter without having a story to link to, I think that changed a lot. And you ended up struggling. I think a lot of us ended up struggling to find a balance to where, how can you break news and get the credit you want and in some cases you crave without cannibalizing your job and taking away the page views that your bosses want. And so you, you find yourself really, you know, it's a tug of war in that way. And you try to judge like, okay, which stories are big enough? Which stories do I have solidly enough to wait until I have a story published? And then I can send out that story with the news and the link and have that be the first anybody has heard of it. You know, that's really when you've hit the jackpot, when you can get that. That's few and far between. Uh, that's changed a lot. I think multimedia has changed a ton. Um, you, you find now more and more people asking about video and want to do videos either for the sites or for Twitter or for Instagram or for whatever, any number of short form video formats that we have now. So, you know, that has really changed. And you see now reporters doing videos before or after games um, to, to talk about what they just covered. And it's, that's so different than even three years ago, let alone five or 10. It's just so drastically different. And, and I think also having the outlets on MLB network or doing radio programs or, or doing stuff like that. It's, it, it's, it's, the beat is so much more all encompassing than it used to be. And you find yourself tugged in so many different directions that it goes into, okay, not just time management, but okay, which of these outlets am I going to be, am I going to ultimately benefit the most from in my job, in my main number one job? You talked a little bit in passing about advanced metrics and about StatCast. What are the differences you're seeing in the way the teams are managing the game and the technology that's helping that? Uh, it's, it's changed a lot. I think bullpen usage, you see it quite a bit to where teams now more and more will try to use some of their better relievers before the ninth inning. You'll see, you know, the Tigers had a hard-throwing, high-strikeout lefty, Gregory Soto. You know, when he first busted onto the scene this season, you had a certain segment of the fan base saying, oh, I can't wait until he becomes the closer. He's going to be a shutdown guy in the ninth inning. And then you find yourself explaining to him, it's like, well, first of all, that traditional closer you see less and less now. And now you see guys like that, especially in bullpens like the Tigers, who didn't have that many left-handers. In fact, I think there was a stretch where Soto was their only left-hander. They saved that guy for a certain portion of the lineup. And when you see even an older manager, an older school manager like Ron Gardenhire doing that, that's when you know the influence of these advanced metrics has really hit home with a lot of teams because the Tigers were doing that. And – they were one of the most aggressive teams in using infield shifts, 
which has really impacted things. And, you know, I still struggle to figure out how to note in my scorebook when a guy hit into a shift, when that 6-3 ground out doesn't mean necessarily that he grounded out to the left side of, of the infield. He might have grounded out to the right of second base on that. So you have to note that. And so now it's like, I either have to write down shift or I have to write down 6-3 in a different style of, of writing to kind of note to myself that, okay, that pitcher induced the ground ball to the right side like he wanted. So you just have you to, need another to color. recognize that. I, that's, that's scary. And you know what? The scary thing is that when I started covering a guy like Casey Mize, who has – who came up with an absolute shutdown pitch like a splitter, I would write the pitches because I go pitch by pitch in my scorebook. I was writing down the splitter with red ink instead of black. And it's like, what have I become here? What have I done? <laughs> it's like, when do I stop with this? You joined MLB.com in 2002. And I think your path to a beat of this magnitude, a major league baseball team beat, uh, is probably similar to a lot. You started with the the campus paper and you covered Skip Prosser at, at Xavier and then went on to do some stringing locally, Cincinnati Post, got a college basketball beat in Bowling Green, Kentucky, covering Western Kentucky, turned that into some work with AOL before work with Sportsline to get where you are now. From that experience, what, and obviously the the job has changed and, and a lot of things have changed in the media landscape, but how much of that experience do you think would be applicable to someone who's aspiring to be a sports writer today? You know, I, I wonder about that all the time because I, I get people ask me about that. And sometimes I, I speak with, with classes. It's, it's so different now than it was then in the sense that I got into the online journalism arena so early to where it, it was, I don't want to say it was the ground floor, but it wasn't very high up. And it was at a time to where, you know, uh, a lot of beat writers would have never considered it. The, I got into MLB.com to where when a lot of people just thought it was going to be like an experiment and then when it stuck around after a few years, people thought it was going to be a stepping stone for writers to go on to a newspaper beat. And some did that. And some were very successful that way. And then at some point along the way, everything flipped. And it ended up with writers who would start out in newspapers and then go online, either with us or with other outlets, or maybe with The Athletic. I, see, I think we've seen that a ton with The Athletic. And it's like, wow, the world is just flipped in my industry. And it just is one of those things that kind of sneaks up on you. And then you look around and it's like, wow, I saw this whole thing happen. And this is just absolutely bonkers. So in that sense, it's a lot tougher to to break in online than it used to be. I, I think what hasn't changed is you want to stay visible and you want to keep writing and you don't want to, you don't want to take a job that takes you away from writing if writing is what you want to do. Um, Cause I, I know, you know, when I was in Kentucky that first couple of years, um, there were, I, 
I had places that interviewed me and would try to talk me into a job and saying, okay, you know, we'll let you write a little bit, but mainly we want you working on the desk. And then when a job opens up, we'll take it. And thank goodness I had good mentors in Cincinnati, you know, guys who were working on the post or, you know, we, we had our advisor at the paper who would say, don't do it. You know, hold it. If you bide your time, a better opportunity will come about. And thank goodness I listened to those people because, you know, I, I don't know what would have happened otherwise. Maybe I would have been fine or maybe it just would have been, you know, stuck in a, a job I wasn't happy doing. I would have left the business. So I would have been kicking myself. But it was right after that that these online venues started sprouting up and I was able to get into AOL in Chicago and that started the ball rolling where I was able to go down to Florida and work for Sportsline and then start making inroads with with MLB right around that point. And it, it took some bouncing around, but then I landed here and it's, you know, I, I don't know if I ever imagined being on this beat as long as I have, but I feel very thankful that I have because I've witnessed so much changing along the way. Some quick hitters for you about your work. Favorite ballpark to cover a game in? Favorite ballpark, probably PNC Park in Pittsburgh, just because you, you look out beyond the outfield and you see the river and the downtown skyline and the bridges and it just cannot be beat. And it's, it's one of those places to where having a press box really high up at the top of the ballpark is actually a plus. Favorite road trip? Favorite road trip is probably uh, West Coast, uh, usually, usually involving Seattle, because I, just, I love going into the Pacific Northwest. And if I can take a side trip to like Vancouver or just hang out in Seattle and do some good eating or do some trail running there, I absolutely love doing it. And, and even just if I can go into like, SoCal, I absolutely love going down into, in our case, it was, it was always Anaheim. Or if we were lucky enough to get interleague and do like Dodger Stadium in San Diego, rent a car and drive down, you know, um, and, you know, just drive down the Pacific Coast Highway and just do the scenic route that way. Maybe grab a bite to eat along the water along the way. Just can't be beat. Don't need to limit this to Tigers. Most quotable player? Most quotable player over the years? Probably Torrey Hunter, who was a Tiger for a couple seasons and was an absolute gem to cover. Um, I felt so thankful to have the chance to cover him first as an opposing writer and then to cover him day in, day out as a player. Uh, just really a gem that he talked, and when he talked, it, it – you knew he was speaking from the heart and that he put some thought into his quotes. I would say, you know, in a top five list, he's probably right at the top. Curtis Granderson's not far from there. And uh, Fernando Rodney, who I was able to catch up with last year, is in the top five as well. Most quotable manager? Most quotable manager, you know, I'd love to say Gardenhire, but I have to say Jim Leland. Just, you know, you cover him for eight years and 
it was such a weird setup because I grew up a Pirates fan when he was managing. And so they had that whole weird vibe of covering somebody you grew up watching. But then <clears throat> to his his media sessions were just absolute gems. They, they were just, they were treasure troves of information. Some of which was quotable, some of which was absolutely off the record, some of which was way off the record. Some of which he would say, you had the levels of off, of off the record with Jim that you knew you absolutely positively could not even write any of this in any form. Uh, there was off the record, way off the record, way, way off the record. And then there was, I better not read this in the paper. And then there was, if I read this anywhere, I'm never talking to you again. <laughs> At least you knew the ground rules going in. That was good. Yes. Most memorable game you've had the opportunity to cover. Man, that's, that's a tough one. I would probably say... When the Tigers and Twins had a tiebreaker for the AL Central title in 2009, because it was such a frenetic setup, the Tigers had a seven-game lead on Labor Day that season, and the Twins went on this insane run to get back within striking distance. And then in the last week, they tied it up. And I had spent three weeks doing interviews for postseason stories. And I kept saying, it's like, okay, do you still want me doing these things? Some of it was, was running as the season was going on, mind you, because we, we were on this kick to where we were trying to get readers familiar with teams before the postseason began with the idea that, oh, they'll want to tune in to them, you know, once the postseason begins because they've read all about them in September. And then it's like the final three days of the season, it's like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't do any more of these right now until we see which one of these teams is actually going to advance. It's, oh, thanks. I've been doing this this whole, this whole time. And, oh, and, and it was to, uh, so you had that whole setup. And then they forced the tiebreaker. It's on the road in Minnesota. You can't have it the day after the season because the Metrodome is booked for a Vikings-Packers game on Monday Night Football. So we get in and we go in. So we fly in that Monday. The game is actually on a Tuesday, and it goes like 13 innings back and forth, one of the most insane games I've ever seen. And we end up um, – I actually ended up writing a little bit about that uh, this year while we were in the uh, while baseball was shut down because we needed stuff to write about, and they replayed that game on opening day, and it was just it was so crazy uh, reliving that that game with uh, talking with Gardy, talking with Jim Leland. Yeah, I covered. I ended up covering both managers who managed that game. <laughs> That's right. Oh wow. <laughs> So it's just so uh, crazy. I, so it's that game, and I would say the Armando Galarraga perfect game that wasn't a perfect game because Jim Joyce blew the call. Those two games. If you could change one rule in baseball. Oh, man. Um, one rule in baseball. I would say – 
If you could go instant replay once or twice on called balls and strikes, like you can in tennis where you can appeal, where you can appeal if a ball is out or in, right? If you could have something like that for baseball, I think you could avoid a lot of arguments and ejections, but you can only use it like a certain number of times. But if you could use that as a way to introduce the automated strike zone without taking the umpire's judgment completely out, I think you would have something. Ah, I like that. I like that. I close every episode of Credentials Only with a six-question segment called The Set Pieces. Same questions for everybody. So okay. fire them away at you. Uh, what are podcasts or newsletters that you use to stay informed, keep learning? Uh, you know, I use uh, Buster Oldney's Baseball Tonight podcast. Granted, you know, full disclosure, he has me on there every once in a while to talk Tigers. Um, I log on to the MLB.com StatCast podcast so I can learn a little bit about metrics that I don't necessarily know about. Uh, I have uh, the Tigers Prospect podcast, both the one done by the Tigers themselves because uh, their West Michigan broadcaster, Dan Hasty does them and has uh, prospects on, but also the one that uh, our double-A broadcaster, Greg Gagne, does because they had a prospect-loaded rotation last year that included Casey Mize, Tarek Skubal, and Matt Manning and uh, Alex Fiedo last year. They were all in the same rotation. Who are the most valuable fouls for you on social media, the people whose posts you don't want to be missing? Oh, boy. Um, Ken Rosenthal is obviously in there. Probably John Morosi and uh, John Heyman. So I love following John Heyman because he has a back and forth with his followers that I, I wish I could have sometimes <laughs> where they give him grief and he gives them grief in return. Not limited to sports with this one, although you can totally go with sports if you'd like. A couple of books you'd recommend to others. You know what? I had to read the Al Kaline biography uh, earlier this year, you know, once he, he passed. And it, rereading that, I remembered a lot of things covering a true Hall of Fame, not just a Hall of Fame player, but a Hall of Fame gentleman in sports that I learned a lot about. You know, if you can read the Armando Galarraga book for, you know, again, I know it's a Tigers book, but the book that uh, him and Jim Joyce came out with about 10 years ago now, I guess it would have been, was really enlightening because it gives you both sides of a game and a call that changed so many lives. And it reminds you to that the best thing you can do as a journalist is remember what that person that you're talking to is going through and try to put yourself in their shoes before you go about doing an interview and grilling somebody about something. Okay. Um, this might be the right time to ask you this because you're just now dipping your toe into the off season, but any TV that you're streaming? You know, I, I have meant to catch up on Brockmire and I have not done that yet. And I definitely intend to do that. And there is also a very obscure series called Stove League in Korea 
about a front office trying to build an also ran into a winner and all the drama that goes into it in the Korean league. And I've, I've never seen it before, but I've had people rave about it to me instead because it, it blends analytics with the people aspect. And so I totally want to try to figure out how to catch up on this and look into it. Is that a, is it on a Netflix or is that a, you got to scour the internet for that one? I, I believe there's a Korean like version of Netflix that has it. I have, I have to look it up and find it. But I've ha- found some like Baseball America people who rave about it that I definitely want to get into and, uh, and catch up on. So that's, those two are definitely up there. So Brockmeyer for sure, because that went off in a strange direction that I definitely want to catch up with. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? Sports memory as a kid. Uh, you mean watching on TV or going in person? What, however you want to take it. Okay. Uh, in person, I remember going to Willie Stargell's last game as a pirate. I remember my dad taking me to Three Rivers for that one. And it started like a ritual that we had because we were still living in Pennsylvania at that point. And I remember going to go to, you know, Three Rivers. It was like a two and a half hour drive from where we lived. So we couldn't do it all the time. But we would go like a handful of times every, every summer, me and my dad. And it, it fostered my love of baseball. And I'm not sure I would be doing this without it. And uh, other than that, you know what? It, it would probably be also be going to Penn State football games with my dad and just the fanfare and camaraderie around those games because he, you know, he went to Penn state and he had season tickets for years and we were able to go do those. And that was kind of a bonding thing for us on weekends during the fall. In fact, after we moved out to Toledo, we would go back a few times a year and that was like a five, six hour drive doing it, but it was just part of the tradition. My last question for you. Do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? I keep my credentials. I have them in a closet in a, in a shoebox, believe it or not. And I keep all of them there dating back to, I think I even have some credentials. I think I might even have an Atlantic 10 tournament credential from my year with covering the team for the student paper. I think I still have that in there. In fact, that, that might be in a different shoe box, but I know I have it buried somewhere. So I've got that. And I got my BBWA cards, which was a big deal when I first got those a few years ago, because that, that took a lot of years to, to get into the BBWA. And that was, that was a rite of passage, good news. Jason, I appreciate uh, your insights into your work as a writer, but also into Major League Baseball and covering it pre-COVID and COVID and everything that's come with it. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Credentials Only. Thank you, Pete. I appreciate taking the time and uh, catching up with you again. Going all the way back to the start of this episode, Jason did win our fantasy baseball season. He actually swept all the hitting categories and he finished in the top three in all the pitching stats. Now, no, I'm not the least bit 
bitter about this at all. I do want to thank Jason for all his insights into working on the baseball beat. It's a long season. It was great to hear how he manages all that and stays very energized for his job. Don't forget, you can find more information on what we discussed in the show notes on credentialsonly.com. While you're there, drop us your email address. We'll slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. And please do leave a review on your favorite site for podcasts. Mike Miche, who finished one spot behind me in our fantasy baseball league, that is Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production. Swing, there's a drive to left. That one is long gone.